So down to, down to business, if you will. Uh, just um, a bit of a bit of background for for today's uh, today's book review. We'll, um, uh, it's been said. I'm sure you've heard this. I've said this in this place before. That if you um, if you want to be a great preacher, uh, the first thing you must do is arrange to be born in Scotland. <laughs> that's, that's the key, apparently. Scotland has produced uh, much greatness uh, over the years, you will agree. There was um, uh, historians of ideas tell us there was a Scottish Enlightenment. Um, big names there, David Hume, Thomas Reed. He should be better known, to, uh, better known Thomas Reed, a great, um, astonishing philosopher, uh, uh, from a Scottish philosopher, scientists, poets, quite the array of thinkers uh, do their business in, have done their business, do do their business in Scotland. And today, I want to share with you a, a, a look at a little book, um, lectures, really, this book, called, as Alexandra uh, indicated, Why on Earth, a bit of a lengthy title for a modern volume, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Lectures given by a chap named Larry W. Hurtado, H-U-R-T-A-D-O. Lectures given at Marquette University uh, this year uh, down in the U.S. Mr. Hurtado was born in uh, Missouri. A bit of background about our author in Kansas City, Missouri. After his school days, he moved to uh, Vancouver. That's a good move to make. And he taught at Regent College, another good move to make. And then after Regent College, he moved on to the University of Manitoba. He was missing winter or something. <laughs> in 1996, and this is directly from his bio, his resume, uh, he accepted a professorial chair in New Testament language, literature, and theology in the University of Edinburgh. Yes, so we arrived back in Scotland. Um, at that storied place, Mr. Hurtado, he founded the Center for the Study of Christian Origins. He is, further background about him, a bit interesting, I think. He is an authority on the history of the textual transmission of the Gospel of Mark. I know a subject which is... Um, great interest people in this room. If you are curious about the earliest Christian artifacts, manuscripts, and Christian origins, you might consult his book uh, by that title. Mr. Hurtado uh, has written a volume soon to appear in better bookstores. In fact, I have to say now it has appeared, the Regent College bookstore, with the title Destroyer of the Gods, Christian Distinctives in the Roman world. Isn't that a lovely title? Destroyer of the Gods, Christian Distinctives in the Roman World. These lectures are, I take it, I've held that bigger, larger volume in my hands just last week. These lectures are in some measure really a preview look at this uh, new larger work. Um, again, these lectures were delivered at Marquette University, a Catholic school, as you will know, in the United States. Um, over the years, over the years, um, there's, here's a generalization for you for sure. Traditional Catholics 
have taken, again, I think I can justify this kind of uh, observation. Traditional Catholics have taken a close interest in the early centuries of the church, and perhaps we can say Protestants less so. Again, I know that's a generalization, but I think it's true enough. As a Protestant myself, I might observe with a Catholic conversation partner that the Catholic interest in these early centuries might be seen by a Protestant with all due respect as simply not early enough. That's the traditional Protestant observation when this kind of topic comes up. Our tradition says, without apology, start with the New Testament. Here is the supreme source. The deep mystery of it all is witnessed to in the New Testament. Of course, this conversation unfolds between Protestants and Catholics. The New Testament obviously gives rise to the church, or is it that the church has given rise to the New Testament? Um, There you go. So much meaning of a text obviously comes from how it is read and even where it is read. The New Testament always is fundamentally a text read in the church. It doesn't sit rarely... It's, it's importance for a library or other folks is interesting, but it's a text in the church for the church. Um, there you go. But nevertheless, the church's ways and means, if you will, its preaching, her teaching, her sacraments, its everything comes from its source, the New Testament. So there's a kind of a circle of observation that goes on here. Uh, new, is it New Testament? becomes church or is it church produces new testament both sides in this old discussion it's a good discussion both sides somehow right you feel but some seen in the other as somehow wrong Uh, that's maybe an encapsulation of what's gone on in protestant catholic uh, relationship to the early church and scripture the relationship thereof but this i think more than think i'm quite certain this is changing It's been changing for quite a while now. Very, very influential Catholic thinkers have most eloquently and powerfully called to their own church, the Roman Communion, for a return to the church's deep sources. Um, Go back to scripture. Great Catholic theologians have said that uh, in our time. It's one of the reasons uh, Vatican II happened, because there's a groundswell of feeling in the Roman Church. We have to go back and look at things from the wellspring of it all. Catholics being Catholics, they speak of this in Latin terms. Of course, they speak of ad fontes, back to the sources. Isn't that lovely? Protestants, we in our tradition, in love with the vernacular, the language of the people, would usually call this something like, what do you say we go back to square one? (laughs) Which is an argument that maybe we could use a bit of Latin in our tradition. It's... It's to the point, isn't it? It is encouraging, therefore, to see a good Protestant, like Mr. Hurtado, at a good Catholic institution talking about the early church. (coughs) That's an interesting backdrop to it all. Uh, Early here, getting uh, uh, to the point of today's talk, early here, when people talk about the early church, it's really good to zero in on what do you mean by early. Some people mean, well, from Jesus out to 100. That's uh, maybe, uh, or out to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But here early is going to mean three centuries. Three centuries. 
you were alive in the year 2000, of course we all were, three centuries means, say, from 1700 to 2000. That like, seems like a good stretch of time. A lot can happen in three centuries. A lot of change, a lot of uh, interesting things. But this is a look at three centuries of the early church. Three centuries of it. And 300 is a very interesting time to, to, to uh, end a kind of discussion about the early church, obviously. And you know why, obviously. A significant stopping point is at 300, because at 300, the church approaches her, what can be called her Constantinian uh, watershed. Mr. Hurtado doesn't go into this in these, these lectures, perhaps he didn't have time for it. This is obviously what he's thinking of. The Constantinian watershed is in view at 300. The church uh, changes at that time. The, the great changes at that point. The great general himself, Mr. Constantine, winning battles. Uh, the famous one at the Milvian Bridge. He converting to the Christian faith some hotly contested kind of religious move here, of course. <coughs> it will always be discussed. What did really? What really went on? In the soul of that man, do we have access to such uh, such answer to such a question? And then the gathering at Nicaea, where the church decided what words she would use to confess that Jesus is Lord. I was at the 7:30 service this morning, and we said that creed. So it's still said in most of Christendom uh, every Sabbath. So in a very real sense, we are still in this story, aren't we? Uh, history never goes away, it just shifts. We're in this story today. What happened to the church in the first three centuries? What happened to our community, I might want to put it, in the first three centuries? What happened to us, our story? Straining forward to what lies ahead is a gospel imperative. So mere traditionalism is futile. We don't look back at three centuries of churches past just for fun. Otherwise, it does become a kind of traditionalism. Perhaps in some Roman circles over time, they've fallen into that trap. But the gospel also says that we are to remember the good deposit, remember what the gospel has been doing. Uh, the faith is given. So we do look back. It's a happy necessity to look back to scripture and to see it's the community that read scripture over time. Bible and its readers. You can't have a book without readers. The church is the reader of scripture. It's the way it works. So today, uh, with Mr. Hurtado, uh, this very learned fellow, we will hear, if you will, from Scotland. Uh, perhaps, I hope, better than that, even a distant echo, something heard from our sisters and brothers in Christ, in the church's first Three centuries. Quite specifically, looking at uh, Mr. Hurtado's meditations on this very interesting question, I find it so. Why did our brothers and sisters in Christ, why did they become Christians over those three centuries? Today's talk, a book review. Before we jump in, uh, after that intro, let me say a word of uh, prayer. Lord, we would... Um, uh, look at the gospel in many different ways. And one way we trust which is good for us is to look at how it has grown and moved in the world and what it's done. So may we 
see the gospel with uh, uh, a bit of more a bit more clarity by looking at the uh, your people in these centuries. Uh, Lord, give us uh, wisdom and light in these things. Amen. It is interesting uh, to note right off the bat, as does our lecturer, um, very, very interesting, intriguing lecture, uh, lectures, interesting to note that some very big, powerful minds, some very big names have taken a real interest in this question. It's interesting um, how people have really thought this is important. From all sorts of different angles. Edward Gibbon, the famous um, historian of uh, Roman antiquity, a great 18th century man of the Enlightenment, a fine fellow. Uh, Adolf Harnack, in the late, is it late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, took a real interest in the early church. These, uh, these centuries uh, intrigued him. In our time, a great sociologist, American fellow, Rodney Stark, has written about the early church and uh, its rise, its membership, a lot of things. There, the work of these, um, perhaps these notable ones, giving rise uh, to a lot more work. A lot of classicists, New Testament scholars, historians have taken a real interest um, in this issue of the early church, these centuries, and have addressed uh, different questions, including this question today, why did people become uh, Christians in these uh, centuries? That very widespread interest it is simply to begin with i hope you'll agree a good question very just interesting his historians classicists find this kind of stuff interesting it's what they do for a living however having said that beneath the surface of academic inquiry there are hot issues percolating in this inquiry there always are and anything that's significant to look into there are interesting contests of scholarship here. What does the church look like in these centuries? Specifically, we're speaking here specifically in the Mediterranean world. That's important to uh, note. Church moving out across the Mediterranean world, where the church made its first great impact, we can safely say. Moving swiftly... Out from Palestine. It's good to get the feel of the drama of this. There is a drama here. These, these people on Middle East, Palestine, moving out across the Mediterranean world. How come? Why does it happen? Moving swiftly. What motivates this movement? Why did this movement hold together as an institution? Why was it institutional? That is to say, if you met a Christian 500 miles away from this Christian, how is it that you would recognize them as Christians? Why was there a, a recognizable movement here? Um, what class of people, in social terms, embraced this set of beliefs? This has been a very interesting uh, topic of inquiry. Who were these Christians? We went back to 150, somewhere in the Mediterranean world. We ran into a Christian group. Who were they? What did they look like in what we would call social terms? You know, Were they mostly slaves? Were they mostly female? Were they mostly rural? Were they mostly urban? Were they artisans, etc.? All of the above? What were they? How was it viewed? This uh, movement, uh, as it became more and more pro uh, prominent, how was it viewed by Roman folk? Were they attractive, these Christians? Were they unattractive? 
many, many questions may be asked, have been asked, and have been given a strong, influential answers. At the heart, I'm going to be very swift today with uh, going over Mr. Hurtado's um, um, lectures because I want to lots of time for conversation. At the heart of our author's approach is to note the kind of question, kind of questions, and the kind of answer or answers which have tended to prevail. This is an important stream of his thinking. Um, is real world-class expert on this stuff, Mr. Hurtado. What kind of questions have been asked by scholars, roughly, say, since Gibbon through the 19th, 20th century? What kind of questions have been asked? What kind of answers have tended to prevail? But before we get to just that, just a few earlier observations Less difficult observations, uh, not contested really, but very interesting. Already just in passing noted it, but stop and ponder it for just a moment. So, noting again the very, very obvious but quite remarkable fact, as sort of a backdrop to the the kind of inquiry that Mr. Otato leads us into. The evidence seems quite, quite clear that the Christian movement had a very wide and, so to speak, very swift geographical spread. It had, obviously, wide appeal. It spread out over large tracts of land. Somewhere there's something like 1,500 miles or something is mentioned. We'll go into those kind of details. It really spread quickly. How come? Sociologists have noted, Mr. Hurtado tells us, I've never noted this from sociologists, is that new religious movements rarely have what they call translocal appeal. New religions pop up frequently. They're all over the place, and they peter out. And if they get spread out around here and there, they usually lose their identity. They, everything goes wonky. Excuse a technical term. Mm. That's just something to know. It, it, it really, boom, there it is. It moved out quick across the Mediterranean world. Even Paul's epistles have reflections of this. Paul traveled widely. Christian communities got set up in a lot of places. And they grew from there that uh, the New Testament does not witness to, but they did. Boom, they started spreading. You know, how come? Wide appeal. Um, Also, this movement had a wide social appeal. Many from different classes were found as adherents. Still, this for a long while was less certain. It is still open to inquiry. More uh, more inquiry is done on this one um, than the geographical spread fact, because that seems um, indisputable. But the evidence increasingly suggests, Mr. Tattle informs us, that it did have indeed wide social appeal. Again, slaves were in the, uh, in the church in these centuries, both genders. Some uh, high, highly placed ones in, in uh, Roman culture, aristocrats we might call them, public officials on occasion uh, joined. They were a mixed bunch. Christians in these first three centuries had wide social appeal. 
And again, you can just slow down. It's the, way, it's the way thinking happens. You go slow. You say, I wonder why. Why did, why did it have appeal across, apparently across many different types of people? For instance, this challenges earlier Marxist historians who saw these Christians as almost always members of the underclass. They must have been almost all slaves. People who lived at the edge even of destitution. You know the old story from Marxism, uh, a proletariat looking for comfort in a heartless world. But this is now very hard to sustain. It, uh, it has seemed much, it's much more likely that in fact it was all sorts of people who didn't need any evident religious comfort <coughs> in their lives in social terms. This extent, um, geographically and socially, is probably, now here is where, as referred to earlier, controversy tends to set in on this topic. Historians are maybe a bit shy here, as I read Mr. Tato. These facts might appear to justify a word about the first uh, Christians in the first three centuries, a word something like unique is going on here. But, you know, some historians are going to wince at that. Mm. Why would we want to call the Christians unique? There's something different about this movement. Something surprising. Uh, I would maybe a word like uncanny here presents itself. Why this movement? Why this geographical spread, this appeal across social classes? What kind of narrative, that's what historians do for a living, isn't it? They produce narratives about, they think they uh, have discerned as facts about the past. What kind of narrative adequately captures the data in this? What an interesting question. How shall we talk about uh, this Christian movement in its first three centuries? And the answers, um, Mr. Hurtado uh, is very, very interesting on this, have tended to look to what we would call, some of this anachronistic, but it's true enough, have looked to the social sciences for guidance here. That is to say, things like this are typical observations amongst the people who inquire about this. Alienated people will be attracted to a community which offers acceptance and status. That's true. That, that seems okay. Yeah. Uh, here, hence slaves, uh, the ultimate disadvantaged ones in the Roman world, and women who often were almost always disadvantaged. Here in a community like the church, they would find a warm acceptance and some, some measure of status. Um, so they saw this gathering the church as a good place to be. Well, yeah, that's, that's out there. That's very common in the literature, apparently. <coughs> leaders in this group, uh, the church, uh, there's always leaders around. They may have suffered from, this is some of the uh, language from the social sciences, which Mr. Tattle um, makes his readers familiar with. Uh, they may have suffered the leaders from status dissonance, the poor chaps of some kind. You know, they had gifts. People in this society have gifts, which unfortunately are unrecognized. You know, it's life's tough, not fair. 
But they found an outlet in this new social group. They could, you know, be big fish in a small pond. That's where the Christian leaders came from. They got unhappy, miserable women and slaves with socially disoriented leaders who didn't have their gifts recognized properly. So this explains where the church came from. (laughs) End of story. Whoops. Um, that's, that's, there you go. Variations on these kind of themes abound in the literature. I would have thought when I first heard them from Mr. Tato, I first heard this actually from Charles Taylor, who writes a lot about Gibbon, the 18th century historian. Early Christians apparently sold themselves as effective miracle workers, and this drew the ignorant multitudes. There you go. That's, that's our background, folks. That's our, that's our genealogy. They were good at miracle workers, and they sold themselves to this, and so people poured into the church because they wanted to get to know these miracle workers. Now, there's another explanation for why the Christian church grew. This, that last argument, apparently, Edward Gibbon took it very seriously, the 18th century learned historian of the Roman Empire. Mr. Hurtado contends, I think it's probably quite obvious, that the shadows of people like Mr. Gibbon and and Adolf Harnack are very much still present uh, and and shaping the inquiry of modern inquirers about why in the world did people become Christian in the first three centuries. Mr. Harnack, as you know, is the great liberal Protestant who thought that pretty well set aside something like the Nicene Creed and said that Christianity really comes down to God's a nice father and we're all sisters and brothers. Get rid of the ideas there. The former, of course, uh, is a, am, I, am I being unfair? Mr. Gibbon, the, an enlightenment despiser of the Christian faith. Mr. Tato doesn't stop and uh, say these kind of things, but I'm doing it for him right now. <laughs> an aside here, just an aside. Um, Christianity's greatness, would you agree with this, is shown by its capacity to produce great enemies. That's, I think, a truth about our faith. We have a lot of big enemies over the centuries, and it's because um, uh, it's tough to deal with Christianity, because it's got a, a power about it. At this point in these lectures, keep an eye on the time here, Mr. Hurtado gets really interesting. What is missing, and I'm going to be very swift about this, but you'll get the gist of it, I'm sure. What is missing in this modern discussion, often, not always, perhaps it's shifting a bit now, what's missing is something really quite simple. And so it may be stated simply. Too often, it is either denied or overlooked that ideas, that beliefs, Go very slow here, not just take this sort of thing in. Ideas, beliefs may be very powerful forces in people's lives. This is crucial to Mr. Tattle's move here. He uh, makes his contribution to this scholarly inquiry. This social dynamic, beliefs and ideas, must be looked at seriously. A direct quote from Mr. Tattle. Beliefs, he says, beliefs, ideology... And rhetorical framing, how a movement presents itself to people. Beliefs, ideology, and rhetorical framing help to produce, he says, social and historical phenomena. And should themselves be considered historical and social phenomena. 
When you read a sentence like that, it seems obvious, but often, apparently, in the discussion about Christianity in the first three centuries, it becomes, it's sort of quietly set aside and it begins to disappear a bit. There you go. Ideas, again, may be powerful forces. Why might we think, and here's how Mr. Hurtado continues his argument, why might we think that Christian ideas, or some subset, really, of Christian ideas, would be received by people in the first three centuries as powerful, and this, quite important for Mr. Hurtado's argument, necessarily powerful? How might the Christian ideas have been received in the first three centuries as powerful, really Powerful in one's life. Um, and, and necessarily powerful is, again, worth um, um, uh, noting. And Mr. Hurtado does note it. Why would Christian ideas, beliefs, I would call them Christian identity-forming conceptions, be necessarily strong? Why would they be nerving in one's life, if you will? Why would they be potent in one's life? Might, why might we see them as such? Because, and this is both obvious but frequently forgotten, there were very powerful reasons not to become a Christian in the Mediterranean world in the church of the first three centuries. This is a big part of Mr. Tato's argument. There were a lot of good reasons not to be a Christian in those three centuries, for sure. And Mr. Hurtado very effectively uh, overviews them. Swiftly, two reasons. And the first, strangely enough, perhaps not of the first importance, because it's the best known of them. Christians did, as we know, on occasion, in, at this time in history, suffer what we would call now forms of official judicial violence. This is fairly well known, isn't it? Significant furious state hostility sometimes descended upon Christians in the first three centuries. It could be nasty in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. Um, when Rome felt the disruptive presence of Christians, we'll go on to mention why in just a moment, when it felt that, dis that disruptive presence as Christians became, Rome reacted Rome knew how to do the iron fist thing, as we all know, for sure. Christianity was seen as disruptive, in fact, to the social cohesion offered by state-sanctioned religious pluralism. Somewhat anachronistic language, I think, there, but accurate enough. The Romans liked religion. They were nuts about it. But they controlled it. There was, there was acceptable religion. And then every now and again, something might show up that was not acceptable. The Christians fell into that last category. This is known well enough. Um, Christians tortured in the first century, the first centuries. Just a point here that Mr. Herdado doesn't make, but I'd like to stop and make it. Oliver O'Donnell has an eloquent passage about if we'd been at the Council of Nicaea, and we had seen bishops, church teachers, theologians, perhaps literally marching in liturgically into their great gathering hall, Nicaea. Something that would leap out to us would be rather disturbing. That bishop has no eye. That, has, that chap has no arm. 
that guy is lame because many of the Christians at Nicaea had been tortured for their faith. When we say that creed, remember it was galvanized by people who had known to what it meant to suffer for Christ. Yeah. Christians were tortured. They were thrown to the lions. The most popular thing about we Christians in the early centuries, people love to think of us getting thrown to the lions. Nowadays, it's not always with uh, sadness. Our, uh, with the hidden catacombs, these dreadful things happen. But second, and Mr. Hortado thinks this is much more significant, much more significant about Christians in the first three centuries was the ongoing social cost of belonging to a Christian gathering. This is much more important, he says, than the violence, the uh, episodic violence that Christians would suffer on occasion. In the workplace, in the family, in work guilds, wherever people gathered, being identified with the church in any way, this often would confer upon the believer the status of the awkward, sometimes the extremely awkward outsider. This was the ongoing price you'd pay for being a Christian in the first three centuries. This would be daily. This would be all the time. It was a really difficult thing in social terms to be a Christian in the first three centuries. A summarizing of this uh, with a direct quote. Birth, death, marriage, the domestic space, civil and wider political life, trades and work, life in the military, he generalized here socializing, you know, just getting together with folks. Entertainment, arts, and music were all imbued with religious significance and association. And the association was with, of course, various kinds of divine beings. The Roman Empire was simply saturated with this. You go out for dinner, you might be asked to do obeisance to some god. Before a business deal, let's do obeisance. Let's, let's ask for the, the help of Serapis or some name god. Everywhere, <coughs> at the birth of a baby, at a funeral, and when you got together, quote, socializing, in the military, everywhere, 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 you had to do obeisance to the gods. And if you were a Christian... This was a big problem. Ongoing daily mess of it all. Um, this would, of course, manifest itself in with different intensities at different times. Just to highlight that, let that stand as uh, as a given. This is what Mr. Tato argues very convincingly. But I never come across this before. It's good to read. You know, sometimes you come across something that you just never imagined. But he makes this point with backup from other uh, other scholarship here and there. In many domestic spaces in these centuries, one would think, especially perhaps in wealthier houses, I, homes, I don't know. It was understood in the Roman world, Mr. Tattle tells us, that if you were a slave, and we know a lot of Christians were slaves. Paul addresses slaves in his epistles. There were slaves in the churches. Roman Empire was filled with slavery. If you were a slave in, in most, um, most institutions, it would be understood 
And excuse this point, because it's rather blunt and brutal, but it's understood that you would be sexually available. That's just a fact of the ancient world, Mr. Tano said. It would just be understood that that was part of the scene, part of the culture. You would be sexually available to who owned you, other authorities in the house. Never really thought about that before. When Paul talks about slaves, when he addresses them, he must have known, Paul would know what difficulties they may have faced in being in the church, <coughs> gathering where he, some churches Paul had founded himself. That would be an ongoing daily issue with these people. What am I going to do about that, Paul? You know? Uh, what would you do about it? Leave? Go into probably destitution? Maybe some member of the church could take you in? Maybe, maybe not. What would a Christian slave do? Just leave that with you. Just you, you realize how often these early Christians in this kind of social environment, these, again, our brothers and sisters in Christ, how often they must have pondered and prayed over words from the gospel like, be as meek as doves, yes, and as wise as serpents. You would have to be as wise as a serpent to negotiate your way around daily life in the Roman Empire as a Christian. It would be a challenge. Very, very difficult to be a Christian in the early centuries. Why would somebody choose to join? Why did it make such huge geographical gains? And why did so many people throughout the culture want to join? Why the success in the face of ugly, pervasive, vicious at times, opposition. Hmm. I simplify, but I must move on. What made this cost endurable? What gave strength to step into a Christian identity, if you will, entailing such a complexifying, to put it mildly, the complexifying of one's life? And here's... Um, be very swift to my conclusion here, uh, Mr. Tattles, it's obvious and powerful, I find, uh, his argument here. Mr. Tattle thinks that two beliefs made the difference. I take it in his big scholarly volume, he, he, he expo expands on this, I don't know. But in these lectures, he puts it forward as a contribution to the conversation. Um, Two ideas made the difference. What nerved you? What gave you the power to take on a life of perpetual social disadvantage and perhaps violence in the first three centuries? First idea is this. God loves you. God loves you. So that's Mr. Tato's first big argument. God loves you. Pagan gods were an interesting bunch. Wow, were they ever. If placated properly, they might help you with the crops or a business deal. Just any old challenge in life, the pagan gods might come in handy if you placated them properly. There they were. They just might help. But never, never, ever, ever. That's me, not Mr. Tata. You don't write like that. <laughs> never did they announce, these pagan gods, that they loved you. They didn't love you by name and they didn't love you with an everlasting love. No. 
they didn't. Loving gods or love for gods simply did not figure in pagan piety. Simply did not figure in pagan piety. Mr. Hurtado there references one Ramsey McMullen, great classicist, great historian of our time, not a friend of the Christian story, as I understand it. So it comes from a source like that. Loving gods or love for gods simply did not figure in pagan society. Why... Why isn't it true that we take this theme for granted? We ask ourselves as Christians, why do we take it for granted? Um, We take this theme for granted. In antiquity, so argues Mr. Hurtado, it was enough to set the heart aflame and it was enough to make you might to be willing to live a new kind of life, even a life filled with new dangers. Hmm. Hmm. To be a Christian in antiquity, and this kind of shows a kind of, throws about a, a kind, I think, exegetical light. Mr. Tato goes into this a bit. Some exegetical light on some of the things that we take, we read in the New Testament from our modern perspective that may have been read so differently in, in antiquity. To be a Christian in antiquity may have been, always seemed to be a call to be, in fact, an incarnation of the gospel. Come, join the church and become an incarnation of the gospel in your own life. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. The early church, a martyrdom church sometimes, a suffering church, uh, may have just read that, yes, I am called to be crucified every day. And I will become, therefore, indifferent to status. Indifferent to the acceptance, daily acceptance, the reinforcement that we live by in a culture. Without affirmation, without acceptance, life becomes almost intolerable. The early Christians, their uncanny power came from this idea. God loves me. And I am crucified with his son, Jesus, because he loved me that much to die for me. Second, and clearly following on this, and I think this is a, a great, a great uh, theme. Yes, God is love, and that, and and this God, this God who is love, this God of Israel, who is the God and Father of Jesus Christ, has given you the assured promise of immortality. God is love. God has and is giving you the gift of immortality. Here is, Mr. Hurtado argues, a most powerful, effective, speaking to the heart, speaking to reorder one's emotional life, a most powerful, effective belief, nerving, strengthening the believer for a very difficult, again, a very difficult life. Not just the judicial violence, which happened here and there, but the daily cost, the awkwardness, the social alienation, the exclusion from the workplace, the exclusion from the family, the broken relationships everywhere that might come about because you took on this difficult life of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ and becoming thereby an incarnation of the gospel. I am crucified with Christ. These people may say, every day I'm crucified with Christ every day social disincentives 
to use some of the language that comes across in these lectures, social disincentives were many, and they were often undoubtedly effective. These beliefs, God is love, God has the gift of immortality for you, challenged and overcame them. Such is the essential argument of Mr. Hurtado in these lectures. Just again, before I race to a conclusion, I hope I see we will have good time for conversation and I want that. So again, these lectures, just think of what they're saying. The church, we're looking at the church, three centuries of it, geographically everywhere in the Mediterranean world, members from all strata of society, recognizable in belief and, and a way of living. They were persecuted, sometimes again with violence, always with social suspicion, with different levels of intensity, um, undoubtedly, making life dangerous, or at the very, very least, very complex. And again, what enables the decision to become a Christian in such an environment? And at its deepest, the answer is love and immortality. Love and immortality. Edward Gibbon, we start out by a look at him, great man of the Enlightenment. He totally discounts the power of religious beliefs. He regarded any religious belief as simply so ludicrous that one couldn't take it seriously. That's the major, the man who put his major stamp on this inquiry about the early church in modernity. That's the way the Enlightenment wants to see religious belief. Ludicrous. Let's look for the real story. Let's not pay attention to the ideas of the gospel. No way. Let's run off in with other explanations. Charles Taylor, by the way, is, Mr. Hurtado um, doesn't mention this. Uh, Charles Taylor's a magnificent dissection of Gibbon in his, uh, his magisterial book, A Religious, A Secular Age. Gibbon is finally dealt with, I think, adequately and profoundly by Charles Taylor. Gibbon's uh, approach to the Roman Empire and Christianity is just, um, a scan- I think, scandalous. He does not religion, ideas. He, these people are a loopy. So he found other reasons why anybody would become a Christian. He couldn't take it seriously. But I, but I must close. close. Life uh, in antiquity may have simply been deeply shaped, in fact, uh, by a dull hopelessness. Um, as here, even, uh, I've been asked before, why are you putting glossolalia on the, uh, on this board? I, this was an interesting, and, and gravestones quite frequently found in antiquity, th- these words appear. Non-fui, um, I once didn't exist. You know, before I was born, I was nowhere. Fui, I existed. This is the story of all of our lives at one level. Not to. I am not anymore. Oh, I'm dead. That's why you're standing in front of my gravestone. <laughs> but this is devastating. Non curo. I don't care. There's antiquity. Maybe in a nutshell. I wasn't. I was. I'm not. I don't care. Mm. There's antiquity. There, imagine living by that worldview. And one day you hear God loves you. 
It's the gift of immortality from you. Christian Christianity grew. This is the this is the sickness unto death, as Sorin Kierkegaard calls it. People are in despair, but they frequently don't know it. This guy, before he died, knew it. This guy knew he was in despair. A lot of people in our culture are in despair they don't know it yet. They are. <clears throat> Here is the mighty clash of civilizations. In the big book, Mr. Hurtado quotes a Yale historian. He's an historian about the massive cultural shift that must have occurred because of Christianity in the first three centuries. Maybe this discussion is shifting over into a way to be more pleasing to the Christian. Uh, maybe there's things are getting better. Here is uh, the mighty clash of a civilization. These people were dying without hope and now into their world there leapt out from Palestine a new people with a new witness. Dying and behold we live. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. That's different than that worldview. Dying, yes, but behold we live. We'll die the daily death of your of alienation from you, but we live in Christ. There is the power to be different. And it may become increasingly the power to be different in uh, 21st century Vancouver, in 21st century uh, paganizing Western world. Uh, there it is. Um, uh, a strong tradition of scholarship has tried to mute uh, the gospel word as it looks for reasons why the Christian church grew and why people believed in it. This kind of, uh, these lectures challenge that, uh, that tradition. Very quietly, very gently, in a very scholarly manner, uh, Mr. Tato does his business as as should be done. So as I say, uh, a footnote really, uh, here's a word from Scotland. And how our faith, for instance, encountered a place like Scotland, I have no idea. It would have it would be so different than how it went out into the Mediterranean world. It would have it would have uh, uh, family resemblance, I'm sure. It's the same gospel, but it must have negotiated its way into that kind of the northern European culture in a quite a different manner. Uh, quite a, a same story, but quite different at the same time. Uh, but that's uh, maybe for another day. Some of you learned ones who know all about Scotland can uh, can um, and unfold that for us. The gospel is a power, and it makes its way in the world with amazing power. It's good to be reminded of that in a nice little volume like this. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Um, good reading, just excellent stuff, and I've enjoyed speaking about it all with you this morning. So it's 5 to 10. Let me say a word of prayer and then uh, let us discuss. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in the faith who've gone before us and we look to them for encouragement and uh, and hope. And may this uh, our inquiry about them uh, give us new, new insights into the gospel and a, a renewed desire to uh, walk with you in our moment as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm trying to remember the name of that book. Sure.
very good title. Okay. You're you're good at Latin, I must say, Harvey. Oh, yeah, I know. It's my forte. That you could wear, you could put that on a T-shirt to be funny. Yeah, that would be yeah. and wear it to work. Yeah, yeah. Conversation starter. I might do that actually, just to be funny. Good sir, good sir. Has a role in this, uh, and as an explanatory basis for the rapidity of spread. F.F. Yeah. Bruce, in his uh, The Spreading Flame, attributes that the rise of the church in the first century to this extraordinary role of the Holy Spirit. Is that Yes, it's not on the surface in lectures like this, and it, I guess in most academic circles they would. But uh, implicit in his, he wants to go back to sources again and say, love, God's love, the gift of immortality is part of the gospel. The, Paul says to Timothy, the gospel brings to light immortality. So yes, it's implicit, is it not, in his, I want to say, gospel ideas... It's the chief uh, force making for rapid spread and and uh, it's uh, and, and through different social levels. So yes, it's implicit uh, in that, but he doesn't say it on its on the surface of his uh, lectures. In the geography department at UBC, were you ever allowed to bring up the Holy Spirit and, and the fo- formation of uh, ma- that mountain range? Only a coffee. Only at coffee time, yes. Well, I hope, with his Catholic uh, confreres at Marquette, I hope he would. they would talk about the Blessed Spirit, un- undoubtedly. Uh, he's praising, I think implicitly, is he's all praise to the Lord is here. But it's, it's just waiting there, you know. There's a sense in which the whole thing is, uh, is a miracle. Oh, for sure, yeah. But and, if, uh, yes. The extraordinary thing in reading uh, The Spreading Flame is how... In that first century, rather than the three centuries, mm. you you had the presence of individuals who had seen the risen Christ, in, or at least had friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. Thank you very much for that. That's why I go, uh, when you, when someone says early church, I I best things. Okay, could give me some years. Mm-hmm. He's going right out to three hundred. Good uh, sir. That is actually a very important point to the spread of the early gospel. Mm. Uh, what we see between Nicaea and the end of the uh, the uh, writing of the New Testament is really only five generations. Mm. It's really only five generations between the end of the writing of the New Testament to Nicaea. Yeah, that's so we have to take the New Testament documents in its, say, its social context, mm. which is, it's a document being spread by people who either were there or knew people who were there. Mm-hmm. So because of the concreteness of the Gospels, mm. as opposed to just making these ethereal promises, it just lines out biography and an actual eyewitness mm. confirmed by the people who were actually transmitting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that concreteness gave it a power that was much superior than, say, its com- competitors. Mm-hmm. Because the Roman Empire at the time was a time of extraordinary claims. Mm-hmm. There were many 
religions running around saying all sorts of fabulous things, making incredible mm. promises to the point that the public was actually quite jaded. So here mm. comes along this religion that's making something very, mm. very concrete. Mm. Say we're not we're not making any any sort of concrete claims other than this is what we saw. Mm-hmm. And you draw your own conclusions mm. from what has been seen. Mm. Oh, and by the way, I knew a guy who was there. Mm. That's yeah. very, very powerful. Yeah. Mm. And then you have, on top of all this, you have people who are doing extraordinary things spiritually, mm. Mm. like exorcisms mm. and healings and the mm. charismata. Mm. And that's going to provide a witness on top of the uh, eyewitness testimonies. Mm. Yeah, I, yes, thank you very much for that. That's wonderful. And I think for Mr. Tattle's purposes, when he talks about very briefly in lecture, God is love, mm-hmm. if you have a few steps, okay, stop, let's have an hour on that. How would the early Christian community have unfolded that great astonishing claim? He would have gone on to all the kind of things you said. Uh, of course, that 1 Corinthians 15 would have been uh, at, uh, 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 Paul says, I, I tell you, I, I, here's the folks I've known who saw him. And then why is one untimely born? So the witness to God's love is unfolded in that kind of concreteness, yeah. for sure. You can't, you can't lay, it, lay it at, say, just one cause. Mm. No, no. And, 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 and this is always going to be a debate subject to conjecture. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, even, yeah. Uh, reestablishing the subjectivity of Christians, say, over a course of three centuries... Mr. Tato thinks is is a is a challenge. Other scholars agree that it's a challenge, but they're tr- more and more efforts are being made at that. What about the old, ordinary Christian? What was their what was their what was their subjectivity like? Mr. Tato takes a go at it with Paul. Uh, I'm, I'm, they they felt themselves incarnations of the gospel. I'm crucified with Christ. That that would nerve you to be different in that he, he his. He leans, how difficult was it to be a Christian then? He thinks it was really difficult. Work, family, everywhere. And so something had to give these people strength. And he thinks it's those, he, he, he decides those are two focal points for, for the strength, yes. But it could be unfolded, of course, with the gospel itself. We, as you have, but you the said, transmission lines were very Oh, short. Oh, for sure, for sure. And most of the, of the ancient mm. church was within, say, stone's throw distance of, of one of these very short lines of transmission. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Christ, the early Christian church mm-hmm. had a very small core set of followers, mm-hmm. but a ex- very extended set of, say, satellite followers. Mm-hmm. Is that, I, uh, not to go in, uh, on sa- uh, um, footnote controversies in, in another context, but this, that's why the early church really took a lot of care, care about, well, who made your bishop a bishop? Because they that line back to Palestine and who saw Jesus was important to them. It was. You know, we're not we're not wandering around here with uh, new religious ideas. We we always go back to the concreteness, as you so helpfully point out. You know, the con- and the early church saw itself mm. really very mm. much mm. Uh, an extension mm. of uh, messianic. Uh, Judaism. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, that there's the, all of this. Mr. Tata wants to say, say again, not to bore you. All of this has been set aside in much of the scholarship. Gibbon doesn't want to talk about the gospel. Harnack, Harnack, 
supposed to be a Christian of sorts, but he 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 melts it down to a couple of generalizations. That's it. So they naturally then fall into the what um, what we now would obviously call the social sciences to try and figure out why this weird and very effective, fast moving across all social grouping things happening, and they don't want to look at the gospel itself as her title boils it down to love immortality. I'm getting old, older. You people are also young. So um, the idea of immortality becomes increasingly of interest to me. <laughs> Every time I go to the doctor, he's saying, you know, this, this. I never heard of these things before. So, um, sorry, sir. Uh, what strikes me in your presentation and the good comments that we just had is uh, a, at a at a very high level... Uh, a sense of discontinuity. Although I will credit you toward the end, you took a turn back towards uh, uh, a modern continuity with that situation. Where, where I'm trying to go with this is uh, the origins, the limited period, the very early, the direct experience. Um and nowadays, two millennium on, uh, where is the continuity? How are things actually the same, not very different? Yeah. And I'm minded of something that uh, I encountered in my preparations for a couple of weeks from now, where Kierkegaard says, you know, you cannot say, well, Christianity is great because it's been around for 2,000 years and it, it must be, uh, mm. you know, it must be true because it's lasted so long. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. You should not do that. Mm. What you have to do is recognize that in each generation, you are starting from scratch in a subjective, mm. personal sense. Mm. And the key point there is that God became man. Mm. And you have mm. a relationship to this unique historical mm. occurrence. Yeah. And either you recognize it or you don't. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's um, yeah. The Kierkegaard is wonderful in his subjective passion. His weakness, I would say, is that he it's a passionate objectivity at the same time. He loses track of ecclesiology sometimes. But because he was in the or he wouldn't have heard about Jesus if it wasn't for the church. You know, well, the church carries the it's message sort of like on. But the that's that you took. But I that, mean, yeah. you, you can always well, take it and turn it again. Thanks. Yeah. The, the continuity uh, I yeah, you can ask And he that, was very involved with the church. Uh, the continuity <laughs> is uh, in symbolic terms, I think is most effective. It's, we have absolute continuity. It's water, bread, wine, word, sacrament, word. And they live by that in the first three, and so do we today. Out there, it's word, bread, wine. You get and baptized with it. Exactly. So there's the deep continuity. Um, sir, please. Yeah, I'm just thinking of that passage in Acts where uh, after Peter had healed the crippled man in the name of Jesus and brought before the Sanhedrin. And then you've got Gamaliel, the highly revered member mm. of the Sanhedrin, who was, scriptures say, honored by all. Mm. 
referencing a few spiritual movements that died out after their leaders died. Mm. Ningen Steel points that out to the Jewish ruling body and then says those words, which are so powerful. Uh, therefore, in the present case, in reference to the Jesus movement, uh, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, mm. you will be, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Yes, yes. So there's the argument that it is a miraculous movement, <laughs> and that, uh, that that is an explanation. And then I just flipped over Acts 11, the church in Antioch, uh, there's persecution breaking out in Antioch. And verse 21, chapter 11 says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed in terms of the Lord. So you've got, I mean, that's just staggering for me to actually to think the Lord's hand is with the Christians, uh, and that it's, it's God empowering his church to move forward. Yeah, no, that's... Um... <coughs> Yes, yes. I, 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 you, you encourage me. Here's a, here's a quote from a, a Lucian. Uh, uh, who states, uh, he's, he's in this period. I wish I knew more specific. The poor wretches, here's, here's a description of Christians. The poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they're going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody, most of them. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once and for all by denying our Greek gods and by worshipping that crucified sophist himself living under his laws. You know, there's a kind of amazement that, oh, who are these people in our midst? He's sort of, uh, there's another echo of, uh, well, if it, 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 it'll probably peter out. That's sort of a... But, he, he should have heard Gamaliel. Well, it's not petered out by his time. And when's it going to peter out? But, uh, oh, sorry, someone is Sheila? Um, I find his conclusions a little unsatisfying in that he doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, offer any provenance. Is this guy a historian? Is for Shadow a. He's, he's, a, he's a New Testament scholar. Okay, I'm not quite sure what that means in terms of, of historical stuff, but. You know, I, a historian would look for a grave that had something different than that. Oh, well, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, a historian mm. would, well, the, the evidence that this gentleman mm. was named, sorry, I don't know you. <laughs> I mean, you should. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd like to that. Yeah. These are, these would be proofs that would support his conclusions that love and the promise of immortality are what prompts us. Well, you know, immortality has really no value unless it is a better life than the one you've well, got now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, so the question is, you think he's he's I, extremely I thorough and... I don't think he has supported his conclusion. Oh, oh, oh! Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing lectures. Uh, okay. He, uh, he, he'll support you with a thousand footnotes per half sentence if you want that. He's interacted with all the classicists and all the historians who've dealt, dealt with this issue. As a professional scholar, he's do, doing that. Uh, he nuances everything. 
You know, of course, there were people in the ancient world who thought about immortality, but it was it was infrequent, and it doesn't seem to have any power. Um, there were religions that promised immortality. That the, I didn't know this until reading these lectures. The Mithra, Mithraeus, where they were called, or something. Apparently, to get in, you had to fork over a lot of money to join. These were really weird groups, you know. They and they they quote famously, as I've read, petered out. No, this is a nuanced scholarly discussion. He, he's not throwing out. Okay, that proves this, and oh, this quote proves that. He's uh, he he'll 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 torture you with his his nuance and his scholarly footnotes. If you want that, it's there for sure. Sure. Well, I would want proof, not just footnotes. Well, well, what, what uh, uh, proof is an overall? You you produce a narrative and you say, does this capture what we think we know about this this period? And certainly, certainly, the earlier scholarship that dominated with Gibbon and others is a, a I'd say a, a travesty of scholarship. Oh, the Christians, we well, our presupposition, our pre understanding. Is that religious people are loopy, so we know that's in place with Gibbon, and so he cannot take seriously any Christian idea. So he looks around for what we would call social dynamics that make people want to become Christians. So he refuses to take the ideas of the movement with any seriousness. Now there is a travesty, and Gibbon, Gibbon was uh, has been very influential. That's why I. I delight in Charles Taylor's dismantling of Gibbon. Uh, Gibbon taught our culture how to sneer. Religion. <laughs> you meet it every day. The Enlightenment taught us how to sneer at religion. You know, and this this kind of scholarship says, come on, let's get serious. Let's look at the dynamics that we can discern at work here. So, anyways, no thanks. Um, if you think he's just, uh, this is not a preacher in a church. He's doing serious scholarly inquiry here, for sure. This would be taken seriously everywhere. You know, he's he's uh, he's a he's a is a New Testament scholar automatically a classicist? In a sense, they are. In a sense, they have to look at the abiding um, cultural history in which the New Testament happens. In that in that sense, they are. You know. Anyway, good point. The book's good. The book's good. Thank you. Are we getting running out of time? Yeah, we are. We just have to leave. We have to. No, no, but we we need to have deadlines too. (laughs) Although we could stay here and have more snacks. They're still going over there. Any more? Bill? Bill? Bill, go ahead. I thought that was a good comment about slavery. Slavery was universal for Asia, Africa, Americas. Uh, or the Mediterranean, and these folk were property and, and simply couldn't, mm. couldn't leave unless they fled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it was, incre- as you point out, incredible mm. uh, quandaries uh, that uh, mm. you can see in Paul's uh, comments yeah. to slaves as well. I, it, just another comment. I, I don't think that there was a lot of good oral tradition about Christ and the gospel and the uh, apostles floating around <coughs> third century, if there was this uh, it certainly hasn't emerged uh, uh, and, and Larry would I think uh, agree with that uh, I want mm. you two to have anyway. a talk <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you two to introduce it's a, yourself to each other it's a fascinating 
area of inquiry. I mean, what and, and goes on? He just hit hopscotch across the world in a way that mm. uh, the witness, uh, the apostolic witness that is preserved in Scripture through the Spirit, I, I would argue, mm. uh, oh, yeah. just didn't didn't reach uh, uh, in so many ways, and mm. and so there was a great amount of ignorance about the person of Christ, uh, I think, in the early church. Uh, and, and I think the evidence is there uh, in the uh, in, in, uh, in the epistles uh, of that ignorance often. But well, yeah, yeah, it, it, it was, it's always, historical developments are always, are always complex the closer you look at them, aren't they, for sure. For sure. Okay, I'm going to suggest we close with one last question. Oh, sure. With the Petal, when and where was he born? Uh, what year, what part of the world? Is he still alive? Yes, he's yeah, still alive. Yes, he's still that. alive. He's, he's, he was a Pentecostal, a young Pentecostal who went to Bible school with Sven Soderlund. There you go. He knows this. Oh. And, uh, mm. and, uh, I was uh, worked in Chicago for a while, and he had established, Larry had established oh. a church in the Chicago area. Where all of the other staff on the bookstore I worked at uh, wow. were from the, that church. Uh, uh, but a fascinating story. Mm. Right. Well, thank you very much. And nice, thanks.